0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The picture Genesis paints for us this morning is vivid. Abraham chopping the wood for the offering, saddling the donkey with it, bringing Isaac and two servants along. Abraham on the third day telling the servants to stay back, promising that he and Isaac will come back after worshiping. Abraham and Isaac walking together, The wood on Isaac's back. The knife strapped to Abraham's side. The moment Isaac stops and asks, where's the lamb? Abraham, knowing what he's about to do, saying, God will provide. The two of them walking together until they reach the ordained spot. Abraham building the altar, laying the wood, binding Isaac, laying him down, taking the knife. If I'm honest with you all, sitting with this narrative this week has felt sickening. My skin crawls thinking about Isaac laying on that altar, the wood pressing up into his back, watching his father reach for the knife, that same man lauded as a father in faith to us all. I've spent too much time with 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard to think of this story without the help of his Fear and Trembling, a book-length analysis of Abraham's faithfulness to God's command to sacrifice Isaac. Fear and Trembling describes faith as an act with two parts, two movements. First, the movement of resignation, the giving up of something one has. What Abraham resigns hands over to God, in this case is his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loves. The second movement of faith, fear and trembling, identifies is that of expectation. Abraham tells his servants who come with him on this pilgrimage, the boy and I will go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Remember, five chapters earlier, God promised to make Abraham a great nation through Isaac specifically. Abraham trusts this promise and consequently expects to make his journey back home with Isaac very much alive at his side. The author of Hebrews supposes Abraham anticipated God could and would raise Isaac from the dead. Patristic theologian Origen remarks on this passage in Genesis that the things we offer to God are given back to us. Kierkegaard goes a little further, insisting that by giving up to God what he has asked of us, we are given back even more than we had before. Having renounced hope in worldly powers of any sort and still receiving Isaac back, Abraham must see Isaac differently, more accurately, in fact. Abraham must see Isaac purely as a gift from God, a gift that God has not done giving him. And Abraham seems to celebrate. I'd never noticed before studying this passage this week that Abraham's sacrifice of the ram is a non-obligatory one. The angel does not say, here, sacrifice this ram instead of Isaac. The angel only says, don't sacrifice Isaac. God doesn't ask anything else of Abraham. God doesn't need anything after all. This is the same God who the prophets later insist cares nothing for our sacrifices. And yet Abraham sees the ram and decides to bring it to God in worship. The sacrifice is more than obedience, it's gratuitous. God has shown Abraham that there is no way out of the fulfillment of God's promises to humankind. And Abraham is filled with a joy that must manifest itself somehow before the journey back home begins. I can imagine Abraham composing the psalm that we read together this morning on his three-day travel home. In you I have put my trust, God. I have no good apart from you. You have preserved me, maintained my lot. The boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. You show me the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy. I wanna turn now to our gospel. We encounter Jesus and his disciples in the middle of a conversation. Jesus has asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter has answered correctly, you're the Messiah. Then, Mark tells us, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first time in Mark's narrative that Jesus explains that his messiahship will mean suffering and death. And Peter isn't having it. Peter rebukes the one he's just named his savior. And Jesus rebukes him right back, tells Peter his mind is on human rather than divine things, calls him Satan. Peter's rebuke is especially striking in light of the declaration he's just made that Jesus is the Messiah which at first glance seems to be a declaration of faith. But when I think about Kierkegaard's description of two movements of faith, it seems Peter is missing the first movement. Peter's got plenty of expectation, but his expectation is in need of Christ's correction. Peter is confident that Jesus the Messiah will save and redeem according to the scriptures, but Peter has filled in how the Messiah should do it. Peter jumps to instruct his Lord on being a conquering king. Imagine with me for a moment that when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham has the attitude that Peter has in our gospel reading today. I imagine Abraham would have told God, no, I'm not going to sacrifice my son. I have to keep him alive so that your promises to me will be fulfilled. That kind of response is so understandable to me. On the face of it, it even appears to be a faithful response. Is it not faithful to trust what God has promised will happen so much that you challenge that which seems to work against the fulfillment of the promise, even when what seems to work against God's promises comes from God himself? But this is not a faithful response, would not have been a faithful response from Abraham, however understandable. And it helps us see why Peter's response is not a faithful response. For all of Peter's expectation of God's saving work, he's shown no resignation, no willingness to give up his plans for God's intervention. He tells God, tells Jesus the Messiah, look at where the boundaries of what you can do are. You set these boundaries yourself, didn't you? A Messiah conquers and flourishes and reigns. That means a Messiah does not suffer, is not rejected, does not die. These boundaries are in actuality set by Peter, not by God, and God blows them out of the water. God calls for Peter's resignation, for our resignation. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, says, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up one's cross? For the first time this week, I realized that Jesus calls his disciples to the cross before he winds up on one. So what would it have meant to them that he tells them to take up their cross? I'm grateful that theologian William Plasher gives us this reminder in his commentary on Mark. Quote, a cross was not a random form of suffering. It was the punishment those in power in his time imposed on rebels and troublemakers who challenged things as they were, End quote. In other words, a cross is the suffering that happens to a person when they try to make radical changes in this life. For instance, when one has her mind on divine things rather than worldly things and acts accordingly. Too long I've heard, take up your cross and follow me, as Jesus' way of saying, grin, it, grin and bear it and look forward to heaven. But the call to the cross is a call to resistance of the ways death infiltrates our lives, It's a call to let God infuse our lives with redemption, something only possible when, as one commentator writes, our bondage to worldly hopes is bound, as it were, in Christ, just as Isaac is bound for sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And thus, sacrificed in Christ, we are not delivered to a spectral, otherworldly place. We are not made into smoke that only God can enjoy. Just as Isaac is restored in the flesh, we rise in Christ in our bodies. So just as Christ's call to resign is a call to expect, his call to deny ourselves, die to ourselves with him, it's a call to rise again with him. Those who lose their life for his sake will save it. We learn from Peter then that we can't resist Jesus's death without resisting his resurrection. And we need his resurrection We don't dictate how love wins. The incarnate second person of the Trinity shows us on the cross. There's still so much I don't know what to make of in the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. But what is clear to me from our gospel is that when we give our lives to God, he gives us new life on his own terms. And in God's terms, self-giving love and eternal life are one and the same. He offers his love and life to us via the cross. I wonder what we, as a community, are being called to resign and to expect this Lent. I imagine we, like Peter, are asked to resign our closed-mindedness, our stunted imaginations of what our community should look like and what God might do among us. To resign our own plans for fixing what feels fractured. To resign the boundaries we have drawn up among ourselves in grief and anger and fear to resign the marred perceptions we might have of one another. And I imagine we are invited to expect that God will surprise us, give us more goodness than we can dream up, life richer than we can make sense of, love more beautiful than we know how to articulate, love for God, for one another, for all creation, for sheer existence, love we cannot get in the way of, I worked at a camp in Wisconsin called Honey Rock during the summer after my freshman year of college. At one point, the elementary-aged campers were asked to describe heaven in one word. I'll never forget sitting in the grass on this massive hill, perfectly warm from the summer sun, looking up at these big white clouds. And one kid raised her hand and said, we, the kingdom of heaven is we. God is for us, Paul insists which is good news in so many ways, but I've been thinking this week about how God is for us, for our being together and our being together well. I've been thinking about Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17 for the unity of future believers, for our unity. Jesus prays to the Father, I ask that they may all be one. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one as we are one. And I suspect that when Paul talks about Jesus interceding at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is still praying this prayer for us. It's no accident that in the Gospel of Mark, this account of Jesus' foretelling of his death and calling of his disciples to the cross is directly followed by the story of Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus Christ's glory is his cross and resurrection Our glory is our cross and resurrection, that is, our hope of perfect love and eternal life is doing things God's way, on God's terms. And we see in Jesus that God longs for, is rooting for our oneness with one another, empowering us to surrender ourselves so that we might receive back beautiful life in the flesh together. May we find victory this Lent in the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord, May we be able to say with the psalmist, preserve me, O God, for in you I have put my trust. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. All my delight is upon the saints who are on the earth. My heart is glad and my soul rejoices. Amen.